Aren't you glad you can say it as well with my soul? <laughs> Praise your name. Lord, we thank you for your promises. They remain the same every day. Our emotions and our circumstances do not change your word whatsoever. We can constantly go back and it'll tell us the very same truth again and again and again. We'd rather, Lord, walk by your truth than walk by our emotions. And when we get over into ourselves, Lord, help us to navigate back to your word. That's the anchor of our lives. And Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit here to teach us your ways and embed truth deep into our souls. It'll produce a lasting fruit in our lives. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Praise God. Well, I told you one day I was going to come in here dressed cool. But I haven't got cute hair like some of them got the hair standing up, you know, and stuff like that. But I am dressed cute tonight. Cute preacher. If you say, <laughs> I'm messing it all up. <laughs> I'm messing it up. Actually, I saw where the high temperature today was going to be 48 at 8 o'clock this morning. So I put on something warm. And, and it's not warm enough. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to share some things. Uh, how many saw any notice of what I'm going to share tonight? You got a heads up on it? <laughs> Jesus, politics, and Super Tuesday. That's what, <laughs> that's what I'm going to be sharing on this evening. You know, in six days, it's primary season, Super Tuesday. Alabama's um, in that lineup on Super Tuesday. So we're among the states holding primaries. And what should be our approach uh, to politics, to elections? As a Christ follower, just speaking for myself, as a Christ follower, are my actions ne next Tuesday... And any time there's election of government leaders, are my actions conditioned by the reality that I'm a Christ follower? Are those two things connected whatsoever? Because I'm afraid they're disconnected. That our faith in Jesus is over here and our political views are over here. Is there any way to connect those two things? And that's going to be kind of like what I'm going to zero in on, and it's going to be focused on Jesus. A lot of this is going to be focused on how he handled things, how he went about um, the setting that he was in, the political climate that he found himself in. Uh, being a Christian, though, how should you and I approach elections? And we're going to take a look at Jesus and politics first. Um, when you look at the four narratives of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see very little that Jesus talks about politically. In fact, if you see anything, he avoids that subject. But his birth threw him in the midst of politics. You realize that? Because when those Persian astrologers showed up in Jerusalem... Obviously, 
It's like when we go to Oregon and people say, you're not from around here, are you? Okay. They saw these people traveling in this caravan and they realized they're not local people and they're saying, we have seen a star and it's an omen to us. We're trying to find where the one that is born king of the Jews. Now that title was not a common title, but it was loaded with controversy and with passion in that setting. Because the one who they were asking, or at least they directed them to Herod, Herod became curious and, and said, uh, tell me again what you're, what you're here for, and well, we've seen this star, and we've come to find out where is he that is born king of the Jews. Now, Augusta, Caesar Augustus, had officially awarded that Herod the title king of the Jews. Now, in some records, it's called king of Judea. But kings weren't not, that, that term was not floated around very much. Uh, Caesar was considered a king, but he didn't, the, the word Caesar was his title. Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar. And they looked upon them as kings. But Herod was in an area that he was given the title king of the Jews. And the reason why it's controversial, Rome gave him that distinction, and Rome gave him that title, and Rome gave him that window of jurisdiction. You remember when Jesus was on trial, Pilate thought he would get rid of this situation by sending Jesus to Herod's jurisdiction. You remember that? Well, that was Herod. He had this little enclave of jurisdiction. But the Jews resented it because he had no Jewish blood in him whatsoever. In fact, just the opposite. His mother was of Arab descent. They objected to Rome putting a monarch over them, having the name, title, king of the Jews. So when someone shows up saying, there's a child that's been born and he's the future king of the Jews, you can understand why Herod's inferiority and paranoia took over. So Jesus, when he was just born, came into this setting. There's a, there's a really good movie. I mentioned it uh, Sunday, Risen. It, it doesn't follow the biblical narrative, but it really gives you a window into how that, how that whole setting about Jesus' resurrection and everything that happened around it could be looked from a different perspective. But there's another movie out called The Young Messiah. Have you seen any things in it? It's uh, The Young Messiah. It's about Jesus as a boy. And outside of uh, him being at the temple, the age of 12, everything else in that movie is extra biblical. Because <laughs> there's no record of him before he was 12 and between 12 and 30. That's 18 years. So this is almost like a novel-like movie. And I, I've seen the, uh, the trailer for it, and I've heard about the book that was written, so you can probably check it out, but... Most of it's not going to be found in the Bible, whatever they have in there. But when Jesus becomes 30, he goes and he starts preaching. And this is a very sensitive area of the world. They have uprisings from time to time of Jewish zealots. And what's Jesus doing? He has literally thousands of people coming to his speeches, to his services, to his hillside lectures. 
And so anytime there was a mass gathering of anybody that was really watched, do you remember when John the Baptist was commanding a big crowd when he was baptizing? Do you remember who was among the people watching what was going on? Roman soldiers. Because he addressed them. He preached right straight to them. So probably there was observers that was assigned to keep an eye on Jesus. Even though he didn't come as a political figure, he did come into a politically sensitive situation. And he used the word the kingdom of God, which was, which was not about the family of God. It was about his being the son of David, right? I want to take you, first of all, to Luke chapter 13. And there's just a couple of references where Jesus is pulled into the discussion of politics. And this is one of them. Um, I'm going to read from Luke 13, and the other one we're going to read from Matthew 22. But uh, in Luke 13, verse 31, and, and how Jesus handles politics is maybe a, a model as to how, where do we fit in the political debate today? How, how much should we be involved in the political debate? At that time, this is verse 31 in Luke 13, at that time some Pharisees, and you, you kind of right there stop, Pharisees were not supporters of Jesus. So whenever you see them coming to him, it says, all right, something else is up here. They came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now this is a different Herod than the one that was alive that tried to kill Jesus as a two-year-old. You remember that? He ordered every, every two-year-old male, baby, and under to be killed in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. He died shortly after they headed into Egypt for security purposes. And then this is his son. This is that Herod's son. He's carrying his father's title. But this is that Herod, and they're saying, Herod wants to kill you. Now, there was no evidence of that. And I don't think the Pharisees, if there was evidence of that, would be warning Jesus, do you? So they're just trying to somehow manipulate how he's handling himself, put fear into him, and they said, you need to leave here, you need to go into hiding, you need to get away somewhere, you need to get out of where you're at right now because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus had a reply. Jesus could be a little political, couldn't he? <laughs> Here's what he said. Go tell that fox. Isn't that something? It's kind of like the disciples telling Jesus, uh, you know, I think you hurt those people's feelings. <laughs> really? You know, so maybe, maybe they're at a place where their feelings were going to get hurt no matter what. But he says, you go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So um, Jesus was letting them know, he says, I'm not going to take my orders from him. I know what I'm doing. I'm out here doing ministry. We're going to keep driving out demons. We're going to still heal people. And when the time comes... It'll be time for me to die, but it's not going to be on Herod's schedule. 
It's going to be on God's schedule. So this would be the same Herod that Jesus appears to later. And he's excited to see Jesus. When Pilate sends him, he's excited. What is it? Why is he excited? He's heard all these, new, these reports of people being healed and all of this. And so he thought that Jesus would just put on a personal demonstration of doing great things, like a magic show. And the Lord wouldn't even talk to him. Wouldn't even answer his questions. So they made fun of him as king of the Jews. Isn't that something that all the soldiers, all the things that they did to Jesus, they, they knelt in front of him, they hit him with the staff, they said, hail king of the Jews, we, you know, you're the king of the Jews, some king you are. So it was all built around that title, all of their mockery. So they sent him back to Pilate. The other place is in Matthew 22 that we're going to look at. And you'll turn there, Matthew 22 and verse 15. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, by the way. When the Pharisees, this is late, this is the week uh, leading up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. So this is within just a couple of days. And they're pulling out all stops to try to stump, stump him. In fact, I think Matthew says that they, this was to trap Jesus. This was to get him to say something wrong. So they laid out plans to trap him in his words. They, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. I think that's an important designation because these were people who were politically charged Jewish people. They were part of the apparatus of the Roman government. Yes, there were Jewish people who made a living off of being subjects of Rome. Publicans, tax collectors, they became wealthy because Rome used them. So here they came and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Boy, there is the question. That is a loaded, charged question. A yes and no answer would put him in a difficult place. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites. And they were hypocritical because they were benefiting from Roman taxation, especially with the Herodians. He said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked him, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were finished. They were amazed, so they left him and went away. Well, that little trick didn't work, did it? But look at what Jesus is, Jesus is answering a political question here. He's not avoiding it. He's answering it. He did not avoid it. He answered it. What did he say? You live within a system that the coinage that you carry around in your purses is Roman coinage. So if you're going to be in the system, you have to accept the conditions of that system. And so you give to Caesar what's his, but you give to God what's his. So he didn't see a contrast, did he? He didn't see that if he was going to be a Christian... 
you couldn't be involved in politics as well. Follow me? He said, there's no, there's no separation of those two. So think about when Christianity expanded in the early chapters of Acts, it really became politicized then, didn't it? The churches, when the church started growing, then the authorities started taking notice. And I want to take you to Acts 17 because this shows you how the church can come under pressure because of its influence within political structures, okay? This is Thessalonica. This, this chapter begins with Paul going there. This Thessalonica is a Greek town, a Greek city. Today, it's, its population is near 400,000 people. So this is not a small town. It wasn't a small town. This was a large city. It was a port city. It was commerce. It was busy. So there's a lot of people there, a lot of different people there. There's Jewish synagogues there. And so they get there, and in verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue as was his custom. And for three Saturdays, three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament there. Explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He's backing up this, this truth that in the Old Testament was the death and resurrection of Messiah. He said, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, and, and be prepared when they are doing this, what they gravitate to to get their point across. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, this is what they're accusing them of, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees. Boy, does that sound familiar? In front of Pilate, they says, we have no king but Caesar. So he said, they're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. He is still a politically charged individual because he's challenging the monarch of that world. And it says, hey, they're telling us there's another king named Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Right now, in American politics, Christianity, its claims are in the crosshairs of a new attack on faith. And so how should we respond? How should we vote Tuesday? Well, we should pray. That's a good place to start, isn't it? We should pray. Praying is part of the Christian life. I think we know that, right? Seeking God, seeking directly from Him direction and wisdom and counsel that we can trust the Holy Spirit to lead us in the right way. 
We need to really make sure that the priority of our source of our counsel and our ideas comes from the Word of God and from prayer and from the Holy Spirit. But we should be involved. We should be registered to vote. We should vote. We should participate in the process. I believe we have a responsibility as believers to participate in the process. Choosing our leaders is, is one of the most important things we do. We do not help that by withholding our participation. So we ought to be registered to vote. We ought to vote. And we ought to lobby. Not lobbyists, but <laughs> we ought to be able to express our convictions and share our convictions and not just be private people. I don't think we're supposed to be private at all. We certainly can't be private about our faith, can we? We can't be private about our convictions. If those convictions come from our relationship with the Lord, we cannot be private with our convictions. So we must be willing to influence other people as to our ideas, and that will get you in some serious discussions. We have to be vocal. We have to, be, we have to speak forth what's in our hearts and what we believe in. We need to write. We need to, we need to be on Facebook writing stuff. We need to be on Twitter writing stuff. Um, we need to declare, we need to make declarations that this is the way we should think. Um, I believe the church should be about the kingdom of God. First. Jesus was. Seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will fall into place. And I believe that's true about politics. If we seek first the kingdom of God. Let's declare the truth of the gospel. Remember that Paul in that charge setting, in that city, large city, what was he telling these people? That, that Messiah had to suffer and be raised from the dead, die and raised from the dead. And so we should not get too far from the gospel, right? We need to defend the sanctity of life. Pro-life. Every Christian should be pro-life. And I guess it's possible for someone to be a Christian and be pro-choice, but I just don't see how it works that way because God is the creator of life. We need to defend the sacred trust of marriage, the marriage between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. We have a great constitution. The constitution is a great document. James Madison George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, a lot of people were in that constitutional convention. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were over in Europe being, trying to learn how to be ambassadors for the new fledging nation. But what a great document, the Constitution of the United States. We need to defend it. We need to defend the balance of powers. We have a, we have a great system. That system has worked pretty good. We need to keep that system. I'm not talking to you politically. I'm talking to you about morality and ethics and truth. It's not about who's, what party has the upper hand. In fact, I remember getting a discussion with a guy about an issue. And he said to me, so well, you Republicans are, and I said, wait a minute. Did, did I say I was a Republican? 
Well, you, yeah, I says, no, I did not say that. I'm not a Republican. Well, what are you? I said, I'm a born-again believer in Christ, and my brain does not belong to any party, and my allegiance does not belong to anybody. I'm going to think clearly, and I'm going to vote for whoever I believe God wants me to vote for. And I believe that's the way we've got to be. We should not have an allegiance to anything that pulls us away from our allegiance to his lordship. We need to be careful with labels. I'm not against people being participants in parties. But our, that's not our main allegiance. Our allegiance is to him. And we need to think that way. We need to believe and pray for justice. Two of the worst decisions by the Supreme Court took place in 1857 and in 1973, both by a 7-2 to vote. I told Brenda as we stood at the, great, at the cemetery at Gettysburg, I really could have just wept because I looked at that, that field of tombstones and I said, we could have prevented that in 1857. If the Supreme Court had ruled for Dred Scott and his wife to be treated as human beings and not as property, none of those young men would have given their life for such a stupid war. But they, deva they devalued their life. And we had to die. 500,000, half a million Americans had to die to settle that issue. I say that because England, who brought slavery to this, these colonies, decided that they would deal with it legislatively. Isn't that amazing? And in 1973, by another 72, they ruled that what is inside of a woman's womb is not a human being with zero protection under the Constitution of the United States. So you see, these principles are not principles about politics. They're principles about the Word of God, about life, human life. All people are created in the image of God. Every person has the value of God upon them. That's, that's a great value, is it not? That every person has value because they're created in the image of God. We need to find candidates that best represent our views and support them. As a pastor, it's not my place to declare who I'm going to vote for. And I've never stood up here and said, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. Because that's not my place. My place is to tell you how you should be thinking and how you should walk in there with some semblance of the mind of God and God directing your action. That's my responsibility. My responsibility personally is that I glean that information for myself so that I can walk into that polling station and have peace about what I'm about to do. Not always have I had peace about what <laughs> I was about to do. But as a Facebooker, is that a word, Facebooker? <laughs> you know, I can say whatever I want to say. <laughs> When I'm standing up here, I'm going to be very guarded about what I say. But on Twitter or Facebook, I can express political views, but I'm very cautious about doing that because of my place. I'll tell you the one candidate I voted for, though I'll tell you about who I voted for in the past. 
I'll tell you, the one candidate I voted for for president that expressed my philosophy of government that was as a mirror of what I believe in as any human being could have possibly presented their views. I even went to a rally for this person in Birmingham and volunteered to work in his campaign in the year 2000, in the primary season. In March of 2000, I went into the polling station and voted for Alan Keyes. That man represented my views as close as anybody possibly could. And by all measures, if you research him, everybody in the debates they let him participate in, he won the debates. The one that got the nomination in 2000 was George W. Bush. But in my heart, I felt the best man that was available for this country was Alan Keyes. And, and it's hard for me to fast regret like we're supposed to in 40 days of decrease. But when I think about what if a man with the integrity of Alan Keyes had been in the White House? But the, the, I'll be honest with you. I understand I'm in the minority. When I go to vote, I know I'm in the minority. I know I'm not going to vote probably for the person who's getting the most votes. Not in a primary. In the major elections, I've, I cast a vote for someone that I was, it was like the lesser of two evils many times. And I had to go in there and vote for somebody. I was going to vote for somebody. But I was not happy about having to do that. When Alan Keyes ran for president in 2000, and I'm reading from a, I'm quoting from a release on, on Google. You can Google him. The media generally considered him to be the winner of the Republican primary debates. You know, as it went on, they started keeping him out of the debates. And he objected and protested, but it was dirty politics. But due to the persuasive eloquence of his defense of the unborn, opposition to unfair taxation, advocacy for school choice, promotion of family values, and focus on what he called America's moral crisis. I wish Tuesday there was an Alan Keyes on that ballot. And I have not made up my mind who I'm going to vote for yet. I'm, I've got some candidates I'm looking at. I'm going to have to vote for one of them. But I want you to think about what you're going to do Tuesday. And even as Christians, we need to say, Lord, what is the best way for me to influence my culture and also give you what you deserve, and that is my obedience to your truth, my submission to your truth. Be true to your convictions. You know, we're in the minority. <laughs> I'm in the minority. My ideas are not in the majority. I understand that now. I wish they were in the majority because we'd have a better country. <laughs> but church leaders, I'll finish up with this. When you look and, and, and you just look at what people have to say, and, and Dr. Jeffries, who's a pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, they, always, they, they bring him out. And bless his heart, I said, Dr. Jeffries, you know, I don't know if you need to be on there. But I saw where one person posted something, thing, some things, it was on Twitter, 
and took the, the, uh, the qualifications of church leaders from Timothy, I think it was, and said, this is the kind of president we need. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think you're going to take the qualities for church leaders and says, this is who we need to vote for for president and have someone that meets that. And on the other hand, I, I saw where a guy said, uh, 10 political things that Christians, followers of Jesus, would not do politically. And uh, he listed among the 10, you can't promote, you can't be in agreement for the capital punishment because that's not Christian. And, you, you know, and he just gives these, you know, list of things. I'm like, wow, I don't, you know, I don't know where you're getting that as, as a Christian. But here's what I want you to do. From now to November, we need to be diligent to pray for this nation. Because we're in serious need of God to help us. And the church needs to be revived in prayer. needs to be revived in the passion of, of Christ. Seek his face. Um, our options are going to be limited. And that's the system we're working with, right? We might not be happy with the options that are there. But we need to seek God and say, God, please help us. Help our nation. Turn our nation. Let there be an awakening in our nation. You know, the Dred Scott decision and the Roe v. Wade decision shows us that the Supreme Court can be wrong, very wrong. There's a higher court than the Supreme Court, and we need to take refuge in the reality that in the end, I told my son this when he saw a verdict of a trial, a well-known trial, and he says, Daddy, he got away with that. I said, well, son, nobody really gets away with anything. They might not have, face justice here, but if they don't repent, they're going to face justice one day. And it's not going to be slick lawyers walking up in, before the beam of seat of, of God and pulling tricks on God because God is the attorney and the eyewitness to everybody's life. And he's the eyewitness to our, our lives. So above all things, we need to say, Lord, whatever I do may be pleasing in your sight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So that's what, that's what we should pray. You know, I decided to do this on Wednesday night. Instead, I'm not going to do it on Sunday because the ladies have Sunday. How about that? So this is my one shot to just give you some ideas as to how you should approach Tuesday. So, let's stand together. I know this has inspired the daylights out of you. <laughs> Just made you want to go out here singing praise songs. <laughs> My mother was protesting abortion. She was an activist. And I found myself protesting Baptist Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida, because they were performing abortion. Now, it did not belong to the Baptist organizations anymore. It was, it was owned by somebody else. But here we are, walking around with banners. Abortion takes a beating heart. And um, that was, I think, in my DNA as my mom. I have an activist nature. But whether we wave a play card or not, we need to be serious about our country. Lord, I pray tonight 
that more than anything, we hunger for you and we have a thirst for you. A thirst for your presence, a thirst for your truth. Because every day we live, it's not going to be about politics. There's an election every four years for president. So we need you more and more every day, not just in election time. We need your counsel in many more ways in our families and our relationships. So we need to just have a life of seeking your face and a life of worshiping you and believing in your plan that above the decisions of mankind, you will bring everything to a culmination one day. And life, as we know it, will come to a, a place where you will step onto this planet and establish your kingdom in a real sense. Until then, Lord, let us promote the kingdom that arrives in the hearts and souls of people through the gospel. Help us to be diligent about following our convictions, those convictions forged out of the word, your living truth to us. We do pray for our nation. We pray for our president, our vice president, our leaders, the Supreme Court. We pray for our military leaders. We pray for those who are in the intelligence community, for the CIA and the FBI that have people diligently trying to keep terrorist attacks from happening. We pray, Lord, to their expertise that you would add your hand upon them, that you would give them insight, that loss of life can be minimized, O oh Lord. We are in need of trusting you and not trusting in our chariots and horses. We need to trust you. We need the Lord to have a love for our nation, a love our nation enough to seek your face for a revival. And I pray locally for our mayor and for our city council, for the county commission, for those in charge of the institutions, the major institutions in our county and our city, for the universities, for the hospital, for those places, Lord, where important decisions are made, that your hand be upon those leaders. Lord, we just want to see your kingdom come. And your will be done in Tuscaloosa as it is in heaven. In our own little neighborhoods, in Lake Wildwood, in those communities, those subdivisions, may your kingdom come and your will be done as it is in heaven. Help us to carry that prayer to our homes tonight as we drive by houses that people live in. We don't know whether they're saved or lost, but you, you don't want them to perish. You want them to know you. And that you'd create in us, Lord, a passion for the lost, that we'll pray and seek you and take every opportunity to share the gospel with them. Let us leave, Lord, with a, a new awareness that we should be about your kingdom work first and then all the other things you'll add to us. Bless the ladies as they minister Sunday, Lord. We're eager to see you use them to encourage your people in a tangible way. Bless their plans. Bless Nora with your message, Lord, and, and let us come eager to hear what you say to us this coming Lord's Day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>